You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, business, and philanthropic world. Today we have our special guest, Rebecca Massier-Kaufman. I've known Rebecca for about 30 years, and in the past we've collaborated, studied together, and shared leadership opportunities. Rebecca is a seasoned CEO with broad leadership experience in sales, marketing, risk management, international business operations. She spent more than a decade at Citigroup, serving in a range of CEO, president, and general manager roles and previously was with Wells Fargo for 13 years, culminating in her role as head of small business segment, where she built a multi-billion dollar P&L division. Rebecca is known for leading highly successful business turnarounds, scaling new businesses, and expanding operations globally, along with her strong background in governance through corporate and nonprofit board experiences. She is frequently sought after as a speaker on leadership and business transformation, culture change, and business high-performance teams. Rebecca has received numerous awards, including being named to the San Francisco Business Times, one of the Bay Area's 100 Most Influential Women in Business, for 12 years. In 2018, she was honored with a Fulbright Lifetime Achievement Award, having studied at University of Helsinki, Finland, as a postgraduate Fulbright Scholar. She has a BA from Brown University and an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business. In 2020, Rebecca started RMK Group, LLC, to advise CEOs of startups in all phases of growth. She recently wrote a book with a co-author called Fit CEO, Be the Leader of Your Life. She lives in San Francisco with her husband and her two grown children. Welcome, Rebecca. I want to start by asking you a couple questions about how you ended up in the finance world from your schooling. So tell me about that. Uh, Can you share a little bit about your path from being a student to becoming a businesswoman? Sure. You know, I don't know that anyone ever knows exactly what they're going to end up doing. If you had asked me when I was young, the one thing I did know is that I loved business. So I always thought I would run something that it would be in financial services. I would have never guessed. And so really it came from I, my first uh, role outside of when I graduated from business school, uh, I really wanted to go into, um, a company that produced things. And so I interviewed with a ton of manufacturers and I wanted to live in London and none of them would hire me because of work permit issues. So uh, one of the folks I interviewed with at one of the manufacturing companies said, really, you're going to get a role much better with a place that will get you a work permit. And I, I know someone who has a smaller firm and smaller firms will be able to get you work permits. So he introduced me to a partner at a consulting firm, a strategy consulting firm. And that's where I ended up working. They did get me a work permit. And I loved all the projects across multiple industries. We did have a number of clients in financial services. And I, that's where I really got exposure to how interesting financial services was and is. And that was my first entree. Great. And tell me a little bit, you know, you obviously wanted to be in London and you ended up doing your graduate work in, uh, or your schooling in Helsinki. What brought you to Europe and, uh, and those countries? 
Sure. So I did not go to school in Helsinki. I did all my schooling in the United States, but I had a Fulbright grant to do research in Finland. So it was really post-grad. Got it. Um, I have always been interested in business and international business in particular. When I was in college, I worked in an, an organization called ISEC, which was a student organization to get internships for folks around the world, very similar in philosophy to the Fulbright, which is the exchange of professors, researchers, and students to aid in international understanding and was created after World War II. ISEC was about the exchange of interns. And so I got involved with that organization and I had two internships while I was in college, one in Paris and one in Helsinki. Loved it. And uh, after that time in Helsinki, I thought I might want to spend more time there. And so my that's how I ended up applying for the Fulbright Research Grant. Got it. And what area of research did you do your work in? Uh, well, my degree is in semiotics and I did my research in semiotics. I did a semiotic analysis of the news coverage of Chernobyl. Hmm. Interesting. Probably don't know this, but the controller for about eight years at Temple Emmanuel, where we had met, actually was from the city of Chernobyl wow. and was evacuated when the reactor went and ended up in the United States eventually. Wow, I did not know that. Small world, as they say. And what brought you to the big banking world? I mean, you, you started as a smaller entity, you said, and you ended up in some big banks. How did that work? Sure. Well, how did I end up in the banking world? Post the strategy consulting role, I uh, wanted to move back to San Francisco. My father was ill and my mother uh, let me know she didn't think he had long. And so I, I moved back to the United States so I could have that time with my father. And I went back to my graduate school and talked to a career counselor and asked, you know, what are the, what, what discussed the kinds of things that made sense for where I was. And, and when I told her I wanted to be a general manager or run a business someday, she said, really, the next thing you ought to do is product management, because as a product manager, you get exposure to, you basically have a PL and you get exposure to all the different sides of the business, legal operations, marketing, finance, everything. So great advice. So I ended up uh, applying for product management jobs, both in uh, Silicon Valley and in San Francisco. In San Francisco, it was with financial services companies. I ended up with offers in both. And I took the one in San Francisco because it was closer to my father. So right. there you go. So I ended up in financial services. You eventually moved up to the role of, of senior executive in the companies you were with. What was the biggest challenge of moving up the ladder for you? The biggest challenge for moving up the ladder, oh, I think it's always about people, both self-management and managing others. So as you move up or as I moved up, I continually had larger teams from you know small teams up to my largest, largest team was about 5,000. But um, so it's about managing self and managing others. And I, I spend a lot of time about uh, talking a bit about that emotional intelligence self-management side, actually in my book, Fit CEO, so we can get to that. But I'd say it's always people. People, I think, are always the hardest parts of life. So you said you always had a goal of either running your own business, being a general manager, being a CEO uh, from a very young age. How did that come about? Did you have people that you looked at as, uh, as role models at the time? 
No, you know, in fact, I didn't, both my parents were doctors, so I did not have the idea. I, again, how did I want to become CEO? I, I didn't have a dream to become CEO. Probably, I guess the biggest role model will be Lucy's lemonade stand. <laughs> comic, you know, because if you think about it, both of my parents are psychiatrists and she had that psych psychiatrist lemonade right, stand right. thing. And <laughs> I just love that. The idea that you, I don't know. I think I just was always interested in business. I, I would say that for the most part, I've outgrown cartoons, but every day I look at peanuts and I somehow about every third day post one on Facebook because they're still so meaningful about life as an adult, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but my parents were not, they were both doctors. My grandparents were in business, you know, so I, I you know, so it possibly it skips a generation. Mm-hmm. Now, most successful people speak about their mentors uh, early on in their careers. Was there someone that had a big impact on your life in your business world? I've thought about that a lot. Everyone asked me that question. I really find everyone's my mentors, my boss, my managers. I've had many, my team members who have been phenomenal with feedback, certainly my family. Um, so there is no single person that's been a role model to me or a mentor, but I would say really many, I feel so fortunate that my friends, my colleagues, I, I think I'm a sponge of learning from everyone. And so really many, I have had people that are more champions of me at different companies and that's always very helpful. Right. Well, I always look at, look at the business world where I came from and I started out in the banking world myself and you always uh, looked at, I had clients and customers that were mentors. I had people in the bank, people in the accounting and the law, law professions, because you interact with so many people in financial services. Uh, exactly. And, and being a sponge is a great way to, to talk about it. Uh, in fact, you know, I'm a little older than you now. I'm over 65, and uh, but I'm still working hard and having fun. And I, I learn so much from people every day that I meet with. And, and, and they talk about their lives and their experiences. I just learn more and more all the time. Yeah, there is probably one person. There was a woman at Wells Fargo, Terry Dial, and she often talked about uh, being a learner. And I always thought that was a great, you know, expression mm -hmm. is that we have to all be learners all the time. Now, you've been a, a leader in the nonprofit community in the Bay Area. Also, you've served on some boards of directors. What organizations have you been with and how'd you get involved with those? There's probably too many organizations to name. <laughs> We'd be here all day. But gosh, I've spent many years on the JVS board, Jewish Vocational Services. And that was really um, my very first nonprofit board. I started off as a volunteer doing mock interviews for recent immigrants. And I love that because it was a great way to give back. One of the things I did all the time was recruiting. And so the idea that I could help uh, recent immigrants improve their interviewing skills. And we used to sit in this little tiny closet and videotape ourselves while we did the interview so they could keep it and learn. So that was one very meaningful organization. Okay. I, I was on that board for years, eventually became the president of that organization. And for my um, listeners, and that's for my listeners real quickly, JVS originally was Jewish Vocational Services, and they have those organizations in many, many cities across America. And the main role of the organizations are to train and retrain people and get them job placements. So it's a great yeah. organization. Yeah, I love it to help people 
learn how to fish versus handing out a fish. And I actually was on the board of JVS myself for about six years before you joined the board. <laughs> there you go. Small world. Um, I've also been on the board of uh, Congregation Emanuel, which you know well. And that, of course, was a very meaningful board. Totally different to be on a board with so many folks um, who are pillars of being in charge. That was very interesting, you know, because you have the, cl uh, the clergy all in charge and the executive director all in charge and the board, very different than some of the other nonprofits I've been on. I'm also very involved with um, the San Francisco Symphony. I've been on that board a long time. I'm on the audit committee. Lovely to be a part of the arts, very different kind of board. And then I'm on the board right now of uh, the Senior Jewish Living Group, also very meaningful in time of COVID. There are so many good organizations. I've been on the California Chamber, the Cal Chamber, right. for the state of California. I, I, I will stop there because there's so many boards I've okay, been well, on, that's, but that's good. That's they've good. been very, um, really important to the economy, to helping folks get jobs, to also the arts. How do you see the role of a board member in the philanthropic world? Because, you know, you as you said, at Emmanuel, you had a lot of people that were key leaders in their own companies or their own organizations, and they're all getting together on a board and trying to get in the same direction. What does your business career tell you about the work you do on a board? How does it help? Well, I think each board has, for a nonprofit organization, you know, in a for-profit organization, the role of the board is to hire and fire the CEO, to oversee the compensation, to make sure that the uh, all the governance routines, the audits, the, if you will, cybersecurity, all the important risks are taken care of. And all that applies to a nonprofit board. But I find the nonprofit boards, we spend also an immense amount of time on the role in the community, the links to the community or to the local government. There's just, there's, it seems to me that the nonprofit boards have many more, uh, even a broader breadth of, if you will, roles to play uh, mm -hmm. in relationships. That's very true. That's a good observation. You are listening to The Road to Philanthropy. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Before we turn to your book, let me ask you a question about women in business for a moment. Uh, you entered financial services, and I would say that from the 1970s on, women always had major roles in financial service companies, which was not true in the broader business world at the time. Did you have any glass ceiling issues with your own career or how did you view uh, the women in your business life? You know, the concept of a glass ceiling, well, I'm sure I encountered it, but don't I don't think that way, if that makes any sense. So I always had, I, probably I picked the right industry. I did look at different industries when I was in business school and I did see that women were far more prevalent in senior management and financial services. And I definitely noticed that versus some of the other industries. And, and that that is true um, that I also saw in, for instance, in the UK, a lot of the American women were in senior roles in consulting firms. So I, I think I definitely knew I was going into a place that women could excel. So I didn't see a glass ceiling per se, um, but I was often the only woman either on a board or in that executive ranks. Now that was not true always, but there were many times that I was the only woman in the room on certain certain boards and decisions. So I, I think it's, I think either it was lifted or I didn't pay attention to it. I'm not quite sure. Well, you, you didn't you didn't consider it an obstacle, <laughs> obviously. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, years ago when I was running uh, banking teams, uh, I was with Union Bank at the time, and I was, ran one of the five uh, top teams in the middle market division for them. And we all went away for a big trip. And those were the glory days of, you know, Acapulco and uh, Cabo and places like that at the end of the year. You got taken away. And they asked me, uh, one, you went through all the different teams. And what, what made your team so effective compared to all the other teams? Because you came in as the top, top team in the division. And I said, what's very clear, all my team members are women. Uh, and actually, I still have contact with uh, half of them today, even though it's been 30 years ago, at least, that we worked together. So let's talk about your book. What made you write a book? Ah, so exciting to have a book. I'm very excited. So uh, Fit CEO, I had a dream of writing a book for many, many years. It really came from a lot of, I think, noticing that when I spoke at events or when I would travel with colleagues and people would let's take events. People would always ask me questions about, you know, how do you manage a household and children and a career? And how do you stay healthy? And how do you manage all these crises? Cause I was often turning businesses around or turning them up. And I, I would do, that was always the Q and a period. And people would come up to me and talk to me afterwards and say, wow, you got to write a book someday. And I, I heard that and I thought, you know, maybe I will. And then over time, I think I began to really kind of jot down my tips and tricks because I had this idea I would write a book. And, and sometimes I would travel. I had some colleagues who would say to me, that workout you do is so efficient. I saw you in the gym. It was 25 minutes and you were in and out and it would look amazing. Like, how did you do that? And I kind of over time figured out how to make my time very um, optimized for my role. And so I share a lot of those learnings in the book and the title fit CEO I came up with when I was CEO of Banamex USA, I was commuting and the commute was ex very tiring. I was in hotels quite a bit on airplanes all the time and we got even, became even more, um, if you will, uh, conscious of all the choices I was making about how I ate, how I traveled, how I exercised, how I led my teams and the four pillars I even talk about in the book. And so all of those became part of um, why I wanted to write the book. Then fast forward a couple of years, I was working with a personal trainer when I became CEO, I wanted a personal trainer that would meet with me just for half an hour, maybe every other week. Um, and so we, I was able to find that. And that person is Lillian. So she is no longer a personal trainer. She has moved on to be a transformation coach and has a, a whole business of her own, but we just mind melded. And I asked her at some point, I don't know exactly when, but probably around 2013, if she would someday write this book with me. And she said, sure. And I said, well, I'm going to do it when I'm no longer in corporate America someday. So <laughs> there you go. I called her up when I left corporate America and said, I'm ready to write the book fit CEO. And she said, let's do it. And we did it. Well, there, uh, your book is divided up into, into five basic themes. Uh, commitment, uh, boundaries, intention, self-care, and heart. Um, which were, which of those came first, or did they all kind of blend together? And how did you decide on those five? Oh, all of the above to that question. Uh, probably what came first was intention. Haven't I just told you I had the intention to write a book, and then right. I I then made this request of Lillian, and we had a commitment. So I think it's intention and commitment are really going to be tied for first because. If you think about it, both, I had the intention, shared it with Lillian, she became a part of the intention and we made the commitment to each other and we did it. 
And we lived the values of the book in writing the book. We wanted it to be fun. We wanted it to be easy. We wanted it. We, we talked through the goals when we sat down. I had already written about half what well, I had outlined together with her the whole book, like in 2013. But then I had written about half the chapters before she and I got together and I sent them over to her and then she sort of wrote her part. And that became, then we sat down and said, how do we want to organize these? We hadn't written the other half. And that's how we came up with the pillars. And if you think about the ideas that we share in the book about it, once you have the intention and you commit to it, that's like 90% of the power. Now you just need the routine. Right. Right. Now you talk about in your book, uh, you know, a number of different areas. And I related so well to them because I did a lot of traveling, not as much as you did. And someone asked me recently, why did you decide to open your own consulting practice? And I said, I got tired of airports. But so you have a section on travel. And, and why don't you talk about, you know, two or three things about the traveling and the business travel that uh, is in your book? Sure. I mean, one of the things about travel is it's a great time to reflect. So I shared kind of how I use airplane time as time to do some of the strategic work without interruption that one can have in an office with everyone that went pre-COVID could walk in and interrupt or all the electronic devices. And I do not get the Wi-Fi on the flight so that I can focus. So I talk, I share a little bit about some of these spaces in our life that we can use for strategic work. I share a bit about how to use the found time in the airport, the longer we have to get to the airport in advance and how to walk the hallways and get some steps in. And I share some fun insights I had watching others stress out and turn bright red and when planes were delayed and how I became about you know, an airplane and its schedule is out of my control and I need to just flow with it. So those are just a few little key lessons I took away from some of the travel. And I guess the one that that is in the book quite a bit, or it certainly has influenced my life a lot is the put your own oxygen mask on first. It's uh, one of the biggest ones I take away from travel. <laughs> Every time I sit down and they give us that lesson on how to use the oxygen mask, I really think it is such a great metaphor for life to put our own oxygen mask on first before we help others. Well, you talk about that in your finance section of the book. You talk about take care of yourself first. And I know that when my daughter came to me about two years ago and said, okay, I'm, I'm making it in the industry I'm in. I need to start to do something with my money. What do you do? I said, first, you take 10 or 20% of your money and you put it aside for yourself. Then you spend your money on the things you want in life. And you say that in your book. So it's very much of a really relate to that. Very, very true. Um, I think the one thing they don't teach uh, students today in either high school or in college is how to live your life uh, and how to do the basics of, of life, which is always kind of fascinating. Um, in your book, you also talk about knowing your brand and, and understanding who you are as a, as a person and a leader. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. You know, I think it's really interesting. There are so many people who, who think when they're young, they're supposed to be something else. And so probably the most common advice I give to everyone is be you. Don't try to be someone else, be you, because you are great. And by the way, you're an expert at being you. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. So you know, you get, you save a lot of energy than trying to be like your boss or like the other people. Now, given as you go through work, you learn a ton from everyone and you know, adopt the things that work and 
reject the things that don't or, or, you know, reduce the things that don't. So it's not that I'm saying don't learn all the time, be a learner, be a sponge, but be you. And I think that's what I mean by knowing your brand. One of the, one of the challenges people have, I think, is comparing themselves to others, you know, fundamentally, like they already have a home and I don't have a home yet, or they have a bigger home than me, or they're making more money than me or whatever it might be. And I think what you just said is right online, be yourself, whatever that is. Uh, when my daughter went off to college, she asked me for advice. And I said, I only have three things to say, have fun, find your passion, whatever it is. And if you can make a little money out of your passion, that would not hurt. <laughs> so she wanted to be in the television business and she's a young producer in Hollywood and having a great time, you know? Uh, Fabulous. Yeah. She's doing what she wants to do, uh, which is a fun thing to do. Fun thing to say, we work so hard in our lives and put so many hours into it. You have to have fun and enjoy it uh, for sure. Um, Absolutely. The other thing in your book, uh, you talk about managing crises uh, and as opposed to the crisis managing you. Can we talk about that for a little bit. Sure. You know, a lot of the intentionality and commitment I talked about. So same thing applies in a crisis, you know, step back when a crisis happens. I mean, you have to respond immediately and all that's true, but take the time to step back and think about planning for that, you know, and being ready to go into it so that you can, you know, and that might be five deep breaths, right? Before you react or whatever can center you that you can then think and start bringing in the right experts to help with whatever that crisis is. So I, it, instead of it managing you and you're just reacting to everything, I share a number of tips in the book about how can you manage the crisis instead of it managing you. So first thing is breathe. And so now that we've said what to do, tell me what was your biggest crisis? Or can you tell me what your biggest oh, crisis was? Oh, there's so was? many. <laughs> <laughs> Pick one. You no, know, I was often brought in. The thing is, I was often brought in at a, a time around. that yeah. a business was needing a turnaround or a turn it up. So, so I guess in a way, if you will, in a sense, I was lucky because I would be brought in when there already was a burning platform and everyone knew it. And so I was often, if you will, the white knight to come in and fix it, which is great because then you get people behind you. Um, they still are happening all the time, you know, these kinds of crises. So there's little ones and big ones, but each one I would say was very impactful for the institution I was in and, and felt like we were in the middle of the fire. And so helping the team through it, I spent a lot of time communicating so that teams knew, okay, the crisis is here. It's scary, but here's what we're going to do. Here's a path forward. And so sharing the reality of where we are, plus my optimism about the path out, I think uh, is how I, I was able to manage the crisis versus having it manage me. The transparency is the word they're using today, but that's very, very true is to be as open as you can about things. Uh, I worked very closely with a couple of people in San Francisco that were crisis PR managers. And one of them was the one that was in charge of the Odwalla problem back in, in the day when they had an, you know, a, a, an issue with Odwalla juices for a while. And how you react to that, how you, you get the team together in a, cir you know, in a circle, circle the wagons and figure out what the next steps are going to be. And, you know, someone once said, you know, uh, when I ran Temple Emanuel, High Holy Days looked so easy. And I go, well, yeah, we had four pages of instructions. And we started six months in advance. <laughs> Everybody had their role. Everybody checked in. 
and I was like a conductor in an orchestra, just kind of conducting the people and advising and and uh, as time went on, I still that's still what I do for in life in my consulting practices. Tell me what it is that's bothering you, and then let's figure out together how we can work through this. Um, so now that you're 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 post corporate life, you're you're consulting. What are your top priorities in the next couple of years uh, for yourself? So it's fun. I'm enjoying this, what I call portfolio career. So I'd say on the personal side, it's time with family and, and friends, you know, with all that travel I did, I definitely wasn't home for dinner every night. So this has been really nice. The upside of being home and COVID is I'm home a lot more and get a lot more family dinners, which I love. So time with family and friends on the business side, I'm doing three prongs, the book I've achieved, which is exciting. And now I get to speak about it. And it's been really fun to see the reactions. And um, a, a woman today told me she already lost 20 pounds and feels better just having read the book. I'm like, Oh, my goodness. Okay, you must be doing a lot of walking. Um, and so the book is, is one big pillar. The second one is on the boards that I'm on, I'm enjoying that and, and, and adding to that. And then working with my clients, I get to work with really great CEOs of some exciting startups and I'm enjoying that. So that combination. And then I'd say in the other free time, I I'm doing, I'm getting to travel more was one of my goals. Again, I didn't know COVID was going to happen, but more personal travel versus business travel. Right. Right. When you're not working, um, which probably is 24 seven, but when you're not working, what do you like to do? So I do not work 24 seven anymore. Right. <laughs> Um, I love dance. So I take dance classes and I love, of course, going to symphony and spending time with friends and family walks or talks. And I do a lot of walking in COVID because, you know, we spend most of our time outdoors. Well, you're in a great city for that. Yeah. You know, I, can't, yeah. I, I know that I'm coming up next week for a week of, uh, of, of time in San Francisco. And I was saying to my partner recently that uh, when I'm in L.A., I walk about 6000 steps a day. But in San Francisco, it's easily twelve to 14,000 steps because you sure. walk everywhere. Sure. You, know, you don't drive. Uh, you park your car and you leave it there and you take all the public transit, which is something that is very helpful in San Francisco. Yeah. What did, yeah. What did I miss and, not, and forget to ask you about yourself? What, what should my listeners know? I think one of the things that um, I would just leave listeners with is enjoy the ride. I mean, what I want, I hope people get out of the book is that the last section of the book is on heart and it's really about enjoying the process and having fun, not the arriving. And I think that's, what's so great as, as you bring on a buddy to do any of this with you or do any of the exercises in the book, do it with a friend or tell a friend about it and just make it, make it a part of even the holidays coming up. And, and I hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving and happy holiday period. So that would be what I'd say. Very good. Gary. Well, I know Fit CEO is available on Amazon because that's where I got my copy. Your website is what? FitCEOBook.com. Got it. Got it. And all the retailers, I have many of them listed on that website as well. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for being part of my show and my listeners, I'm sure have, have enjoyed it and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do so when I publish it in a few weeks. And uh, thank you again. Appreciate it. Thank you. It was great to be a part of it. So appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at PaintedRock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.